In September of 1991, a couple of German hikers were walking along the eastern ridge of a mountain called Fenelspitzer when they found something they didn't expect. Calling Mountain Rescue, they reported the discovery of the body of a deceased mountaineer. They probably assumed they'd help settle a missing persons case, reasoning that the body, named Oatsy after the Oatsal region he was found in, can't have been there for more than a few years. Well, they were wrong. Very wrong. It's estimated that Oatsy died around 5,000 years before his discovery, conservatively dated to have died between 3,000 and 3,400 BC. His remarkable state of preservation was due to the ice in which he was partly encased, and the ice which had preserved him had also served to preserve his possessions. A copper axe, a quiver of arrows, some were fletching, some broken, a knife, a fire-making kit, a pouch containing berries, and, crucially, his choice of mountain clothes. Discovered at an altitude of 10,530 feet, Oatsy wasn't just out for a stroll, he'd been on a serious expedition. I know it's easy for me to just say a big number, and you probably have some vague understanding that that's pretty high up, so let me give you some facts. At 10,000 feet, the air's thinner, containing less oxygen, and even pushing the ability of a helicopter to hover. We can reason that the average temperatures remain below zero Celsius for the majority of the year up here, because for over 5,000 years, the ice encasing him remained intact. If you were dropped off on said ridge with the clothes you're wearing right now, it's unlikely you'd survive more than a few hours. Maybe a day if you happen to live in British Columbia and are listening to me whilst out for a walk. So what was Oatsy wearing? Well, he dressed for the occasion, that's for sure. Modern day analysis of his bones and joints suggests that he spent a lot of time walking in the mountains and he knew what to wear. Decked out in a woven grass cloak and a series of leathers, Oatsy also had on special waterproof boots and a bearskin hat with a leather chin strap. It's this hat that I want to focus on. At around 5,000 years old, this is the oldest hat we've found, but perhaps there are older surviving examples out there. I'd argue that the Oatsy story proves an innate human desire to shelter the head, and given the conditions he was setting out to face, wouldn't you do the same? It would almost be absurd for him to venture out hatless. And here lies the real topic for today's episode. Just as it would be absurd for Oatsy to venture out without a head covering, so would it have been ridiculous for a man in 1920 to leave home without his trusty hat. So what happened? Was anyone to blame? And why did we all just stop wearing hats? Someone's probably itching to tell me that hats still exist and that I could go out and pick one up today if I wanted to. But Jonathan, I'm wearing a hat right now! I can hear my fictional listener yelling. To that person, firstly, I want to say, shut up, it's my podcast. And secondly, I'd say that I'm more interested in the decline of hats as a necessity than I am in the availability of headwear in general. I want to draw a distinction between utility and fashion hats as well, in the sense that some headwear is designed and worn functionally rather than aesthetically. Into this category, I'm putting all forms of helmet as well as beanies and baseball caps. You might argue that there are fashion implications behind these hats, but I'd argue that the primary reason people wear these hats is because it either warms their heads or shades their eyes from the sun. My argument is that if beanies were worn for fashion reasons, you'd see more of them in tropical climates, and if baseball caps didn't have a primary purpose shading the wearer's eyes, you'd see a greater variety of brim length. I'm interested in fashion hats, worn daily as part of getting dressed to leave the house, and it seems that this kind of hat has never been in a worse state. I don't think there's ever been an item of clothing more inviting of criticism than the hat. Shoes are perhaps in second place, but the hat is far ahead in terms of both inviting and being likely to receive mockery. It's like wearing a big sign on one's head with the text, make fun of me on it. And how did we get to this point? Throughout history, hats have been used to denote the wearer's status. Think of the headdresses worn by Native Americans, or the crowns worn by European kings. 
I think there's an argument for the hat's ability to make the wearer look taller and thus play into an image of might and dominance behind this cultural practice. Picture the cap worn by an infantryman at the Battle of Waterloo. Providing no protection, can these caps really be said to be anything other than an artificial extension of the soldier's height designed to make them look more frightful to the enemy? Another example of hats as status symbols could be the wigs worn by judges and barristers in the UK. This has an interesting backstory because as far as I can tell, it seems that the style for wigs, or perukes as they're known in this context, seems to have developed independently from their use by the judiciary. For a good part of the 18th and 19th century, hats seemed to act as the primary embodiment of the then more rigid social classes, with the top hat being worn only by the upper class and the flat cap only by the working class. I'd imagine there were strict social conventions on those breaking the rules. The reason the flat cap is so entwined with the working class is also worth a quick diversion. In 1571, Parliament passed legislation that required all men, with the notable exception of the upper class, over the age of six, to wear a woollen cap on Sundays and national holidays, or face a fine. The idea behind this was to bolster the wool industry, but the unintended outcome was that the flat cap would become forever linked with the working class, since they'd buy the cheapest and therefore least extravagant hats, just to avoid the fine. It's interesting that nowadays hats have fallen so far from grace that even crowns and mitres barely seem to command the respect that they once did. I'm going to read you a news article from January of 1797, an account of the first man to wear a top hat in public, just try to imagine a similar scene unfolding in the modern world. John Hetherington, haberdasher of the Strand, was arraigned before the Lord Mayor on a charge of breach of the peace and inciting to riot, and was required to give bonds in the sum of £500. It was in evidence that Mr Hetherington, who is well-connected, appeared on the public highway wearing upon his head what he called a silk hat, which was offered in evidence, a tall structure having a shining luster and calculated to frighten timid people. As a matter of fact, the officers of the Crown stated that several women fainted at the unusual sight, while children screamed, dogs yelped, and a younger son of Cordwainer Thomas, who was returning from a chandler's shop, was thrown down by the crowd which had collected and had his right arm broken. For these reasons, the defendant was seized by the guards and taken before the Lord Mayor, In extenuation of his crime, the defendant claimed that he had not violated any law of the kingdom, but was merely exercising a right to appear in a headdress of his own design, a right not denied to any Englishman. It's unthinkable that something like this would happen today if someone went out in an outrageous hat, but clearly it was a big deal back in the 1700s. Let's have a look at some potential causes for this shift in sartorial mores. A cursory Google on the topic will often bring up the inauguration of President John F. Kennedy on the 20th of January 1961 and point to this singular event as the moment hats were doomed. I'd like to dispel this myth and point out that Kennedy in fact arrived at his inauguration wearing a top hat, apparently reviving a dying tradition in doing so, and also point out that in archival footage of the event, the crowd behind him shows both bare heads and hats, evidence of a trend already in progress. In fact, the Hat Research Foundation was formed by a number of leading manufacturers in 1938 as they were already aware of the turn of the tide. Amusingly, the Hat Research Foundation began putting out general adverts for hat wearing, suggesting that a hat would help you get forward in life and that hatless men were somehow feckless and slovenly. They specifically targeted college students in the 1940s, which suggests that a generational wedge had already begun its drive. Another common argument is that the returning combat veterans from the Second World War were hat-adverse after having to wear helmets and hats as parts of uniform for the duration of their service. This argument was clearly in consideration as early as 1947, and it's something the Hat Research Foundation sought polling data on. According to their research, 19% of men in 1947 who didn't wear hats said it was because they triggered the trauma of war associated with their uniforms. Does this sound convincing? 
I'd argue that we can dismiss this out of hand because of the thousands of wars fought in headgear that had no bearing on the hat-wearing habits of the population at large after the return of veterans. A strange blind spot for the HRF to miss. If the Second World War was the first war involving headgear, then I'd give it to them, but as it stands, this is just a load of nonsense. Another argument is that the decline of personal space and the increased prevalence of crowded public transport was to blame. As people got more used to bunching up in tube carriages or trams, their headgear became a nuisance. The widespread adoption of motor vehicles by the general population also played a part. Next time you're at the wheel, see how much space there is above your head. I don't know how tall you are or what car you drive, but I think the average is just about the width of a hand, and that's not really enough for a hat. Also bear in mind that if you wanted to drive a full car of hat wearers and you didn't have a space above your head, you'd have to take your hat off and pass it to the people sat in the back seats who would then end up holding two hats each for the duration of the drive, lest they be crumpled in the boot. Another factor that comes in around the 1950s is the trend for longer hairstyles. As hairstyles became longer and more elaborate, the hat became an obstacle to participation in these trends. There's a bit of a chicken and egg situation at play here because it's not clear whether the lack of hats engendered the hairstyles or whether the hairstyles precluded the hats. I'm not confident on either side, but I will say that the arrival of these hairstyles went some way to lock the trend onto its trajectory. An interesting point to be made, slightly sheepishly at the risk of sounding too contentious, is that hairstyles may have replaced the hats, but that the class boundaries can still be seen in the haircuts worn by the different strata of the population. No, I won't elaborate. My favourite argument for the decline of the hat is that they were rendered unnecessary by the introduction of air conditioning and sunglasses around the 1930s. I think it's a fair truism that unnecessary accessories are first on the block for mockery, and with the introduction of AC, the majority of interior spaces became fixed at a comfortable temperature without the need for protective headwear. An individual could travel from their air-conditioned home to their air-conditioned office in their air-conditioned car. The hat would only be worn for the walk from the front door to the car door, and likewise from the car to the office at the other end of the commute. Hardly worth the expense or effort. I think that gloves, and to a lesser extent scarves, are on the same path today, particularly for men. The introduction of sunglasses around this time also took the hat's unique ability to shield the wearer's eyes from the sun and gave people another option, a significantly more lightweight option. Think about it, if you're going to carry something around on the off chance that the sun comes out, would you rather have a fold-up pair of sunglasses or a big hat that you can't really compress the store anywhere? Another personal theory is that hats look wrong without tailored shoulders, and the decline of bespoke tailoring and the overwhelming uptake of off-the-shelf clothing has rendered the hat incompatible with the wardrobes of a majority of the population. Imagine the stereotypical fedora and t-shirt combination. It's not just the poor posture. The slope of the shoulders in a t-shirt makes the hat seem larger and is unflattering to the ratio of head size to shoulder breadth. The cultural revolutions of the 1960s hammered the final nails into the interred hat box. The war-bad sex good brigade sought to topple what they perceived to be a stuffy and rigid social order, and because of their arrival during the final years of the hat, it was easier for the children and teens at the wheel to point to the grainy black and white photographs of their forebears and latch onto the hat as the ultimate symbol of the uncool. It's interesting that the two events that killed the hat weren't intrinsically linked, but happened to form this weird inevitable bond just waiting to be tipped. Hats became a symbol of status in a society, and then status in a society became something to upend. It's interesting to think that for almost all of human history, we revered and sought to emulate the top of society. Until suddenly, we didn't. I don't think hats will ever have a resurgence, and I definitely don't think we'll see scenes like the ones I posted on Twitter, with huge hatted crowds. 
I think they'll stick around for the foreseeable future though, as an oddity or as a sartorial concern for those willing to walk a tightrope. I hope you've enjoyed the episode and can now go about your day a fountain of hat knowledge, surely an impressive field of research with which you can impress your friends and family. Maybe you know a hat wearer and can now slyly insult their flat cap with jibes such as, wow, it's not even a Sunday or national holiday, yikes, and that makes you look larger in a bad way. I don't have a teaser to add for my next episode yet, but I can tell you that it will be really great and interesting, so do subscribe and I'll see you again in another episode of Totally Crucial, Extremely Relevant, Necessary Information.